This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. I'm so lucky today to be joined by Dan Heath, who is... Uh, the author of a number of books. He's the co-author, along with his brother Chip, of four bestsellers, Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and The Power of Moments, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. Sold over 3 million copies worldwide, been translated into 33 languages. But that is not what he is here today to talk about. He's here to talk about his new book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. It was an instant Wall Street Journal bestseller. And Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Danielle. So I was super excited to talk to you about Upstream because it, to me, applies exactly to what we try to do as long-term investors. We're looking for what we think a company is going to do in the next 10 years, 20 years by seeing that they handle their stuff, their problems really well now. What does Upstream mean? Give me the, the primer on Upstream. Yes. So the term upstream, I first heard in a parable uh, that I heard about a decade ago. And let me just start with that parable. So it goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic by the side of a river. And just as you're kind of laying out your picnic blanket, getting ready to sit down and eat, you hear a shout from the direction of the river. So you look behind you and there's a child thrashing in the water, apparently drowning. And so you both instinctively dive in, you fish the child out, you bring them to safety. and and just as your adrenaline is starting to settle down a little bit, you hear a second shout. You look back, it's another child also thrashing. And so back in you go and you fish them out. And no sooner have you gotten them to shore that you hear two more shouts. And so it begins this kind of revolving door of rescue. You're in and out and in and out and it's getting exhausting. And right about that time, your friend swims to shore, steps out and starts to walk away, you know, seemingly as if to leave you alone. You say, hey where are you going? I can't save all these kids by myself. Yeah. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. Oh. And that in a nutshell is what this book is about. It's about how so many times in our world and in our personal lives and our organizations, we get trapped, we get stuck in a cycle of reaction. And we're always reacting to emergencies. We're putting out fires. Uh, we're responding to things that happen, but we rarely take the time to really get to the systems level and think about rather than always be reacting to problems, could we forestall them or stamp them out altogether? And that's the, the starting place for the book. It's a systems level of thinking. So rather than solving each problem as it arises, it's looking at what is, what is the system that's creating these problems? Exactly right. It, it's, like, it's the same as saying instead of improving our fire department to get better at putting out fires, you know, could we prevent fires from breaking out? You know, can, we, can we get ahead of the game? Uh, instead of fishing out the drowning kids from the river, can we stop them from ever being thrown in? And in fact, that, uh, you know, the, the parable is just that. It's a made-up story. But 
there's a real world equivalent to that that I came across. This story is actually not in the book. It's about the YMCA. Hmm. And the YMCA is the leading provider of swim lessons in the country. It's, uh, it's got you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of pools. And so they're usually somewhere around maybe a, a dozen drowning deaths annually. And they have done just this very focused systemic work over the years to push that down toward zero. And, and some of the work, I mean, you have to understand pools so well to be able to make these tweaks that will make a difference in something that for an average pool never happens, right? You know, there, for any given YMCA pool, there will probably never be an instance of drowning. That's the, certainly the median case. But, but to be so obsessive, obsessive that it never happens in that one in a million opportunity. And so it's things like pushing the lifeguard's chair closer to the pool so there's no blind spots when they scan Oh, and cool. using different scanning techniques so that they can cover the entire pool visually within five to 10 seconds. And, um, you know, more intuitive things like banning them from using cell phones when they're in their chair and um, using colored wristbands uh, for children to signal how, how experienced of a swimmer they are and things like that. And you, you layer systems upon systems. And the result of that is that, you know, you start going from one in a million to one in 10 million to one in a hundred million. And when you're talking about the life of a child, that really matters. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that when you hear the stories, it makes so much sense. And yet I think we all have in our own lives systems that we can think of that are utterly suboptimal. And what keeps, (laughs) (laughs) what keeps me from fixing them, frankly, is time is just, time and the ability to pay attention is that is that just me or is that something that you discovered in other it is definitely not just you no and in fact um in some ways this is this is the core obstacle that we're up against there was a a study done by a woman named anita tucker who for her dissertation at harvard she shadowed nurses for hundreds of hours just following them around and trying to gauge how their day went and and what she chronicled was that that nurses are constantly solving weird problems. You know, the medication they need is not available or they run out of towels and so they have to run over to the next unit over and steal some of their towels and come back. Or uh, one case that Anita Tucker described, a nurse was trying to check out a new mother. She was ready to go home with, with her baby. And as part of that, they've got to remove the security anklet from the baby. And, and in this case, it had fallen off somewhere. And so they did this frantic search and discovered it in the baby's bassinet so the mother could be checked out. And then three hours later, the exact same thing happens to a different baby, a different mother. And, <laughs> and this time, they can't find it on the search. And so the nurse tells her manager and, and they figure out another way to get the woman safely checked out. And so when I paint this picture of nurses, you know, that they're scrappy and resourceful and improvisational, it seems like an inspiring portrait. But actually, when you, when you just flip it a little bit and you look at it from the perspective of the system, what you realize is something that's pretty horrifying, which is this is a description of a system that never learns, that yeah. never improves. Yeah. Because when you work around problems, when you're constantly figuring out ways to improvise, when you're stealing towels from you know, the, the closet down the hall, all you're doing is ensuring that you're going to be working around those same problems the next week and the next month. And so, you know, when you say, I don't have the time to go upstream, I mean, that was what these nurses were dealing with. I mean, they've got a dozen patients they've got to deal with, some of whom are experiencing emergencies. 
they, they can't just pause everything and do some root cause analysis to figure exactly. out why these anklets are In falling fact, off. I would even say if they did, they might get chewed out by their boss because exactly right. And they might time neglect away the from patient. the emergency. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is a really terrible trap because you can understand exactly why it happens. I think our sympathies are with the nurse and I don't think any of us would have expected them to do root cause analysis, mm-hmm. but, but the trap remains. If you don't fix problems, they recur. And they will forever exhaust your time and attention. Uh, and, and so the book is really kind of a, a way of exploring why this dilemma happens and what we can do about it. And just for the sake of a, of a little ray of hope here, even small gestures in the direction of upstream work can, can really help. Like in health systems, they've started doing what they call safety huddles in the morning, which is a very short standing meeting, maybe 15, 20 minutes long picture doctors and nurses standing around in a circle and they'll just review cases from the day prior and they'll say, Hey, Mm -hmm. were there any safety near misses yesterday? Did we almost do the wrong thing? Did we almost Mm -hmm. have an accident? What happened there? What do we need to look into? And then they'll look ahead to the next day and say, okay, for today, do we have any really complicated cases happening? Is there anything we should be aware of? And notice that, that that's a way of kind of stepping out of, of, of the tunnel, so to speak, for just a few minutes and getting to the systems level. And in a forum like that would have been the perfect chance for that nurse dealing with, you know, the missing anklets to say, hey, I ran into this weird thing yesterday. Two anklets fell off. I didn't have time to figure out why, but, but we should really flag that because that's a security problem. Yeah, it helps you find the problem as well. Because if, if, it's, if it's happening only to me, I'm going, God, this seems to happen occasionally. It's kind of annoying, but probably how it doesn't happen to anybody else. You start to hear it happening to everybody else, then you realize, oh, this is something we could actually prevent. Exactly right. I think you're, you're wise to point out that, that often we're dealing with problems in isolation and, and we code them differently because of that. And, and so often in the stories I researched, it's like, what would spark action? is when people finally figured out, hey, this thing that I've been living with that I've felt misgivings about, other people are feeling those misgivings too. You know, mm. what if we're all not crazy? What if this is just a problem that we need to, to act on? There was a guy named uh, Steve Spear, who's like an organizational consultant and researcher. And he told me that, that change begins when people feel an insufferable frustration. And I think that's that's a nice <laughs> quote, you know, yeah. that um, that we're ready to we're ready to move when we just can't take it anymore, uh, and and so maybe that's the seed of upstream action. One of the um, the concepts that really stood out to me, and this is kind of what you're saying now, is is this concept of surrounding the problem, mm. of really getting your arms around it and realizing that. It's not just, well, in the context of an organization, it's not just one person dealing with it. It's multiple people from different perspectives. Um, and, and what I've really took from that um, is to look for perspective, to sort of get outside of myself and stand back. Would you say that that's a useful paradigm to think about? Absolutely. And, and in organizations, it can be equally as important. Like uh, one of my favorite stories is about Expedia which is the uh, online travel site. And, and back in uh, 2012, there was a guy named Ryan O'Neill who was digging into the call center data. So, uh, you know, if you book a flight and something goes wrong, you can call someone up on a 1-800 number. 
Ryan O'Neill figured out something that made his jaw drop, which is that for every hundred transactions that were booked and for every hundred customers who got you know, a reservation for a hotel, a flight, whatever, 58 of them ended up calling the call center. It's just an extraordinary number. Yes, 58 Jeez. out of 100. And, and you know, the, the, there was no fire. There was no emergency siren, you know, summoning people to action. This is just something that had kind of crept up on them. And so he and his boss, Tucker Moody, they start digging into this data, figure out why in the world are so many people calling us? The number one reason people were calling was to get a copy of their itinerary. 20 million calls were placed in 2012. That's insane. People asking for a copy of their itinerary. That's like every man, woman, and child in Florida calling in one year <laughs> for itineraries. <laughs> so, uh, so from a technical perspective, if you think, okay, this is a problem. What do we do about it? The answers are very, very simple. I mean, what was happening a lot of times is the itineraries were ending up in spam. And so you can change the way you send those emails and you can give people self-serve options. So if, if they don't have it, they can go online to get it or they can call the IVR. But what's more interesting from my perspective is, is how does something like this happen in the first place? How do you get in a situation where you have 20 million calls coming in for itineraries? Why wasn't there an alarm bell ringing by the time you logged like the third millionth call? And, and the answer is Expedia, like virtually every other company, is divided into silos. You've got a marketing team and their job is to get people to the site. That's what they're measured on. And then you've got the, the product team that builds the website and makes it so smooth that it kind of funnels people toward the transaction. And so they're measured on transactions. And then you've got the IT team that keeps everything running along smoothly and, and they're measured on uptime and a bunch of other stuff. And then you've got the call center folks who respond to queries and they're measured on time to resolution. You know, how quick can I get someone off the phone? And how happy are they with the way things went? And all of those little buckets, they sound reasonable. You know, the call center stats sound reasonable. The marketing stats sound reasonable. But then if you ask whose job is it in this system to prevent customers from needing to call at all, the answer is it's nobody's job. And in fact, it's even worse than that. Nobody even stands to benefit if that were to happen, nobody would get a raise. Oh, that's that metric the point is not right on there. anybody's scoreboard. Yep. And so that's the kind of thing that you see with upstream problem solving is, is often our organizations are designed to make downstream response more efficient. Mm. So those pulling call the center kids reps, out of the water. Exactly. We mm -hmm. want to get faster at pulling the kids out of the water. Yeah. When someone calls the call center, we want to whittle down the amount of time it takes to deal with that. But, but it's like we get so into that optimization mode that it blinds us to the more important question is, what if we didn't have any kids in the river? What, what if no one ever needed to call for an itinerary? Yeah, uh, totally. Totally. So they fixed that at Expedia. They completely fixed it. Yeah. I mean, those 20 million calls basically went to zero, which is the same as saying they just made a $100 million cost vanish at about five bucks a call on average. They just snapped their fingers and made $100 million go away. Uh, but it wasn't natural. I mean, that's the thing is, is, is like the, the way we design organizations encourages specialization, encourages silos, encourages these little bubbles that deter you from thinking about these bigger issues. And, and that's the real danger. I don't know if you still follow it, but that was back in 2012. Do you see Expedia as, an, as a company that deals well with 
um, upstream thinking uh, to this day, or is that something? I tell you know? what, I would not want to be on the management team of Expedia in this moment. We're recording mm-hmm. this during the the COVID quarantine, and and my guess is uh, their their sales have have tanked quite a bit. Uh, the question would be, could they have could they have adapted? anticipating something like this and, and what would that even look well, like? Well, and can they adapt right now? You know, yeah. this is a time when every company dealing with travel um, is trying to figure out what the heck to do. And I certainly want to own companies that are innovative and, and thinking in the way that you describe, um, not necessarily to handle each problem as it arises as quickly as they can, but to prevent yeah. the problem in the first place. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, six months ago, I would have said, for sure, they, they show a lot of upstream discipline, which I think came out of this kind of pivotal moment where they realized, hey, we're missing some big questions. Mm-hmm. And they were starting to do some really clever things uh, around the customer experience, you know, that, that huh. they wanted to get out of the business of just booking transactions and start thinking, hey, let's say we've got a customer on a flight to O'Hare and they've got a change to another flight and, and our systems realize that that connecting flight is canceled. Can we get them rebooked? Um, if need be, can we book them a hotel overnight in Chicago so they catch the next flight the next morning? They were working on all of these kind of automated responsive systems so that your dream as a traveler would be by the time your, your phone turns back on at the gate, Expedia tells you, hey, your flight was canceled, but we took care of it. We got you a hotel room at the Four Seasons tonight. We got an Uber lined up to get you there. And in the morning, you're on the yeah. first flight out. Nice. And so it's um it kind of gets in your head, you know, that that, that there's so many levels of upstream and so th- they're thinking really carefully and thoughtfully about how do we get upstream for the customer? And then you get something exogenous like the pandemic mm-hmm. and you realize, oh god, there was a whole nother chessboard of upstream things that maybe we should have been thinking about as well, like what could our business model survive? A shock of that kind where travel, you know, gets cut by 80 or 90% almost overnight. Uh, and what would we do? Like, what would, what would the hibernation period look like? And, and are there adjacent markets we could enter if that happened? And, and some of those um, kind of wargaming exercises. Yeah, I'm really intrigued that we're talking about it because obviously travel's not going to go entirely away in our world. It will come back at some point. And the really smart companies are going to come out of this well positioned at some point here and maybe they're one of them what other companies um intrigue you or did you find uh, have any examples of upstream thinking and the way they well, i came across a great example from from linkedin which uh you know I, I know linkedin because you know i'm connecting with people on i kind of use it like social media but but of course one of linkedin's core products is their recruiting software for employers so if you need a developer you might book a subscription on LinkedIn and then use it to find candidates and so forth. And it's, it's a high dollar subscription, usually annual. And in a few years back, the norm at LinkedIn was to, to manage, uh, to, to pay special attention around the renewal date, which makes sense, right? If, if, if your subscription expires in December, around November, somebody's going to pay really careful attention and see, you know, is Danielle using this? You know, let's, let's check in with her and make sure she's getting value because they want you to re-up for the next year. And so there was a focus on kind of, you know, saving the day at the end. And, and when they noticed people hadn't been using it very much, they would send in their best reps to try to kind of patch things up and, and earn the renewal. 
And a friend of mine that was running sales at that time, a guy named Dan Shapiro, just had a thought. He said, how early, because by then they had years worth of data, how early could we have predicted who churned, you know, who didn't resubscribe? Hmm. And so they, they go through the data and, and they're looking for clues. It turns out that they could predict to, to a, a, a really accurate degree, probably 80 or 90%, who was going to churn by about four weeks into their subscription, right at the beginning. Like you just subscribed and they can already predict whether you're going to churn or not. And they were puzzled by that. Wow, like, what's, yeah. What's going on here? And they came to realize that, that basically the story was at LinkedIn, you either kind of jumped in, got your feet wet, and got some value right away, or you never did. You never became a believer. And so Shapiro's insight was, let's get out of the business of saving the day, and let's transfer some of those resources upstream to an onboarding program, and let's make sure everybody is getting value you know, from the first month. And just forget about the downstream problems because if they're getting value from month one, they're going to continue to get value. And that initiative basically cut churn in half, which in a business where churn is probably the single greatest indicator of health, like, like uh, Netflix or LinkedIn or others, I mean, that is a massive, massive victory. And I think to me, what I love about that story is the way it cautions us about heroics. Like hmm. I, in the course of researching this book, I've become kind of suspicious of, of heroics and the need to save the day, because I think that, that often the need for heroics is the sign of systems failure. You know, it's like, uh, the, tell me more about that. Well, the, the lifeguard jumps in a pool to save a kid who's drowning. I mean, that person's a hero yeah. and we, not to cast suspicions. I mean, we really are glad the lifeguard was there to save a life. But the more fundamental question is, why did a life need saving? Like, mm. what did we miss up to that moment? And that was the story on a smaller scale at LinkedIn, which was, you know, why did we need to send in the A team in month 12 to quote unquote, save accounts when, you know, with the right onboarding process, they never would have need to be saved. Mm. And I think that's one of the, the upstream lessons is that um, when you get things right, you need a lot less firefighting. It's a lot less um, dramatic yes. and gets a lot less attention, but is has far better outcomes. It reminds me of um, a story that you tell in the book of kids being um, at a school with very low graduation rates. They started to intervene with kids much, much earlier than they used to, um, mostly by, first of all, by surrounding the problem, as we talked about, but then also by kind of really personifying their connection to those kids saying like, oh, I need to help Michael with his homework, not, oh, these kids aren't turning in their homework. It's a systemic problem. No one will ever do anything about it. And it just reminds me of that because these kids ended up doing well. There's no drama when they do well, right? Exactly. Yeah. And in Maybe fact, you can tell that story because much better than I just did. No, no. I mean, you, you had it right. You're talking about Chicago public schools. And, and, you know, there was a point in time about 20 years ago when the graduation rate at Chicago public schools was roughly 50%. You know, you had a coin flips chance of graduating from high mm. school. And, and they did all of this upstream work to figure out when can we predict when kids are in trouble? And the answer was ninth grade. There was a very clear signal, ninth grade, four years early, which is 
they must have had a, a, a celebration the day they figured that out because <laughs> it means you've got runway to change the trajectory. Mm. And they used it. They started, um, they started doing a lot of things in the ninth grade year specifically to get students from off track, which was defined by some metrics they created, to on track. And the heart of it was, was what you said. They went student by student. You know, they, they assembled teams of faculty and counselors and administrators. And for the students who were off track, they would say, hey, what was Michael's situation last week? Was he at school every day? Okay. How were his grades doing in math? That was his weak spot. Well, you know, he had flunked the first uh, exam, but the second one came up. So he's doing better. We're going to get him some more tutoring. And, and what I want to point out about that story is this is a massive system we're talking about. I mean, this is not just like, you know, the Montessori preschool down the, down the street with eight kids. This is 300,000 yeah. students, you know, so, so they had oh, to so act it's the at whole scale. school district, 300,000. Yeah. Wow. And, and yet the engine of change turns out to be this very granular work, you know, schools, you know, teachers meeting in individual schools, talking about individual students to get them back on track. And, and that made such a difference to my mindset about this work that, that even these really macro-seeming challenges are often best addressed at the micro level. I can't tell you how many stories I came across where ultimately when people started succeeding at preventing problems upstream, what had driven that success was that they got good at going name by name, person by person. And, and I think what that forces is when you get that close to a problem, when you understand the complexity of Michael's life in three dimensions and you see how it evolves over time, it trains your intuition and it helps you see what the flaws are in the system. You know, there were some discipline policies in Chicago public schools that were actually sabotaging their students. Hmm. Like uh, in the early days, a couple of kids would do something trivial, like they'd shove each other in the hallway. And, and to show that they were tough on discipline, both kids would get kicked out of school for two weeks with a suspension. And what they now know from the research is if you take an at-risk kid, you kick them out of school for two weeks, guess what? They never recover. I mean, they come back, they can't catch up, they end up failing classes, they get off track. Mm -hmm. And that one thing, you know, that tough discipline policy might well be the number one reason they ended up dropping out of school. Nobody realized that. I mean, it's not like the administrator who gave him the two-week suspension knew it could have those sorts of consequences. Mm -hmm. But until you really get that close to a problem, you don't see linkages like that. Oh, that's intense. So as you, I mean, you have so many, you have so many good examples of upstream thinking. And as, as somebody who spends a lot of time looking at companies, trying to figure out which companies are going to do well, um, 10, 20 years from now, a long time from now, when it's really much more about systemic thinking rather than specific decisions they're making right now. Um, how, let me connect to these questions. So what, how do I look for these sorts of stories? How did you find them? Yeah. You know what I would be looking for is, is a couple of things. What's the old Buffett quote about uh, it's not until the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Yep. That's and, right. and guess what? The tide just went out. Um, and I think we can, we can learn a couple of things of, about leadership from, from this phenomenon that what we expect 
effective leaders is almost by definition that they should be solving tomorrow's problems rather than today's. Mm-hmm. And 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 no, you know, if you're working at ExxonMobil or or GM or or Microsoft, I mean, you're not in the pandemic business, but but look, this was not a surprise. This was not an asteroid collision, you know, mm-hmm. that was just mm-hmm. out of thin air. This has been on people's radar for decades, this exact scenario. And if you're on the board of a public company or if you're in the leadership team and you didn't have some insights, some some basic ideas of what was going to happen if something like this hit, you were negligent. You just were. And, and I think about people, I, I talked to this guy at uh, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, and he had this great quote about, he said, the error people make a lot of times with, with emergency situations is they want to create a plan and then stick it on the shelf with the idea that if it ever happens, they'll pull the plan off the shelf and execute it. So true. And he's like, it, it just doesn't work that way because it's not about the ideas. Well, it's partly about the ideas, but, but it's more about the execution and the ability to, to operate in an environment like that. And he said, if you haven't practiced those disciplines that's where the analogy breaks down. You know, you, it, it's like switching to a new sport, having never practiced it. And so he said, what we need for our emergency plans is to give them a day job, meaning that we find some way to kind of build up the muscles that we know we would need in an emergency situation. So to be more tangible about that at Trello, a software company, mm-hmm. they had a policy where if they had a meeting and anybody had to come in remotely, you know, via Zoom or whatever, everybody else had to join remotely too. And hmm. the explicit intent of that policy was to get them familiar with this way of working, to get them used to it. It was just part of the, the muscle groups that they built up. And I really admire that kind of approach because did, did we know this was going to be a, a coronavirus, you know, uh, probably originating with bats? No. But, but did we know a pandemic was going to hit sometime in the next 20 years? Of course, mm-hmm. we knew it. Mm-hmm. And did, do we know that there are 10 other scenarios like this that would all share the common um, need to work remotely? Yes. And, and, and so I think we, you know, back to the Buffett quote, we can kind of see which companies were well led by had they built up some core muscles to prepare for situations like this. Um, so that's one thing that I think we can we can really use this time to look at. That's the really second, helpful. It's a great point. Go ahead. The second thing is, um, this is kind of off the upstream track, but it was something that just stuck with me. Years ago, during the, the 2007 era recession, there were some, some researchers who studied the way that companies fared you know, before and after the recession. And they said that the companies that did the best were able to toggle between what they called a promotion and a prevention mindset. Hmm. Promotion meaning, you know, go, 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 grow, innovate, seize the day. Prevention meaning, you know, let's be wary, let's tighten up, let's uh, cut back. Um, and, and these are, by the way, are, are, are kind of um, broader psychological mindsets. They're not just business mindsets that apply to a lot of areas in life. But but these researchers applied it to business during a recession. And their point was that some companies during the recession stayed in promotion mindset, meaning they just kind of ignored the bad news. They thought, we're going to come out of this fine. Let's just keep plugging ahead. 
other companies got almost exclusively in the prevention mindset, meaning let's cut, 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 you know, this is terrible, let's lay off employees, let's shut down stores. And, and what the researchers found was that the best companies in terms of their success and survival after the recession were able to blend both. So it, it wasn't just optimism, it wasn't just pessimism, it was basically selective prioritization. So they, they gave an example of, of a couple of office supply stores, and one of them had done the prevention thing of shutting down stores, laying off people. And the other had done that more selectively. They had closed some of their worst performing stores, but they also doubled down on some really profitable services that they'd mm -hmm. been offering to corporate customers because that looked like a bright spot for them. And they didn't want to lose the growth and the potential of that just because there was a recession. And so that ability to be kind of ambidextrous to not get trapped in cut, 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 or ignore, ignore, ignore. That seemed to be a really valuable skill in surviving. And I imagine, given how much deeper this, this shock is going to go, I imagine it's even more important now. It shows that perspective as well. The companies that are... Um preventing only are only looking really to get through the downtime they're looking to the end of the downtime and not beyond and the companies that are only promoting are looking are like oh this isn't going to last very long we're going to be fine way in the future but yeah. it's the companies that are able to take both that short-term and long-term view that did the best exactly right yeah and and i think um It'll be interesting to see. I mean, to me, what's most interesting is to look at a couple of companies that are in the same core business. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's unfair to compare, you know, Zoom to Expedia in a situation like this because one of them is, is facing the most intense headwinds uh, ever anticipated and the other has profound tailwinds. But if you were to look at, you know, Staples and Office Depot or Coke and Pepsi or, you know, that's where I think yep. you start to see some 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 real differences fueled by leadership uh, and the decisions that are made in a climate like this. And I think it'll be very, very interesting and, and certainly an opportunity, uh, you know, ripe for investing skill, because I think we're going to start to see a lot of differences driven by um, human decision making. Totally. And one thing I've really been paying attention to just even so far is how they're treating their employees through this. Great point. Yeah. Are they providing sick leave beyond what they need to? You know, mm -hmm. just simple things like that. Are the executives cutting their own pay so mm -hmm. that they can try not to lay other people off? These things that are really just on the human side. And again, as you just said, looking forward past the recession part of it to like, these are still people we're going to want when we start to come back. We need to treat them well now. Um, how do we That's get there? That's a great diagnostic is um, I think you really start to see people's true colors in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. And, and you can spot a leader a mile away who looks at employees as a cost center. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, it, and it'll become very tangible in this environment. And and I, I think stuff like that matters profoundly. So would you call, would that qualify as upstream thinking? It's systems thinking, certainly. But is upstream thinking more um, looking at a larger level or would that, would that qualify? It, it certainly is upstream thinking. I mean, I, I think probably you and I think of it even more as just moral thinking. Just but, thinking. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I mean, it, in the sense of long term, like, yes, you could save more for the bottom line. If you're optimizing for your income statement and you slash employees quicker, it's going to look better uh, versus, you know, the long-term model is, well, 
let's think of these as human beings and let's let's treat our relationships with them as though they matter and and let's think about how things are going to look three years from now and not just three months from now. Mm-hmm. It really, it's a, just such a good example of, of the concepts that you described, the surrounding the problem, being on the outside, looking and going, okay, how do we handle this the best? And also immersing yourself and saying, okay, on, you know, how do we take care of Joe in manufacturing? And how do we make sure Joe is still around in three years? Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because one of the things I've been annoyed by in, in, this, uh, in this period is the kind of defensive PR mode that a lot of executive teams get into in these situations where... Oh, interesting. Tell me about that. Well, you know, you get this, this vibe from executive teams that, that they treat their employees as like skittish zoo animals and they're afraid to say <laughs> things that are like scary or um, they don't want to spook them. They're afraid to give bad news. And, and it, it's like they're, they're writing these soulless emails that are, you know, just full of, of fluff and kind of fake positivity and we're, you know, we're all in this together and we above. And you just wish there were some people, I mean, none of us are fooled. You know, we, we all know people who are getting sick. We all know nurses and doctors who are putting their lives at risk to go in every day. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't need to be, to have our, 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 what's the opposite of feathers ruffling to have our, <laughs> we don't need to, <laughs> to be, be stroked, you know? Yeah. yeah. Stroked. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it feels like leaders miss an opportunity to just say, Hey, you know, this, this is awful that, that we know you're suffering through this and, and, and there's going to be some pain ahead and, and there's no getting around that. You know, there's no money coming in the door. We got to do something, but you should know we're, we're thinking about this every day. Um, and, and we're doing our best to, to uh, mitigate what we can and, and, and save a ray of hope for the future. That's part one of the story is just kind of being honest and upfront. But part two is what you said, which is this is not something that should be done backstage and unveiled, you know, via, you know, a, a wordsmithed email. Mm. Invite the employees into these discussions, you know, they, they have a stake, they have a voice, they have good ideas. If you want to know creative ways um, to, to really scale back the core of your business while, while maintaining what's essential, ask an employee. You know, that, so, so that's, I think, what, what's really important in this is making sure that, that this is not a set of plans that's kind of um, parachuted down from on high, but it's something that was, that was built collaboratively with the people involved. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Companies are made up of people. They are these sort of inanimate collections of services and products is how we all think of them, but they're not. Yeah. They're made up of people. And yeah. if the people go away, there's no more company. And the sooner people get their minds around that, the sooner they can understand which companies are great and which companies are not. Yeah. And, and in that companies- sense, I mean we're going to see, we're going to see during this period who, who walks the walk and who doesn't, Yeah, you know, and I think it'll be relatively obvious. I mean, this, this is such a profound stressor. I think it it will be easy to see people's true colors and, and who means it and who just sent it through a PR committee to help them sound like they meant it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Dan, I hope you'll come back in a year or so and we can talk about. Yes. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be awesome. Talk about who we think did well and who didn't. It's so fun to talk to you about this. The book is upstream. You guys, 
I found this to be such a useful paradigm for thinking about my own investing practice as well as the companies themselves. So I highly recommend it. Um, Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was really fun to talk to you. How can people find out more about the book and find out more about what you're up to? They can go to upstreambook.com and, and learn everything there is to know about it. There are actually some free goodies on, on my website, which you can get via that link, upstreambook.com. There's uh, a one-page takeaway and, um, and some recommended reading guides and a book club guide, book club guide and some other, other fun stuff. Cool. Upstreambook.com. Dan Heath, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.